0: This podcast is brought to you by the Immigration Law Series by Emond Publishing, Canada's leading independent legal publisher. Welcome home, everybody. This is a podcast about Canadian immigration law. If you are an immigration practitioner or a student looking to get into this area, this is a podcast for and about you. Chantal and I will tell you what you need to know, bring you expert guests, and share their wisdom. And we will all have a lot of fun doing it. So sit back, enjoy, and welcome home. And I will now serenade you with a song. Why are you cutting me off? What? The Welcome Home podcast is not legal
1: advice, but it is awesome advice. Should you develop diarrhea, vomiting, or breathing complications, please consult your doctor. We have an amazing episode lined up for you today on Welcome Home. Catherine and I are interviewing Adrian Smith, a well-known Toronto immigration lawyer who is an expert on family class immigration. In particular, she's an expert on the evolving definition of what it means to be a family member, and she will comment today on some new federal court jurisprudence, which expands the definition of the traditional family. We will also be doing a segment called Things I Wish I Knew, where Catherine and I will contribute some tips of things that we wish that we had known when we were junior immigration lawyers.
0: Today we have Adrian Smith, a founding partner with Batista Smith Migration Law Group. Thank you for joining us today, Adrian.
2: Thank you both for having me.
0: Please, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience?
2: Sure. So I'm an immigration and refugee lawyer uh, based here in Toronto. Um, I've been practicing for almost eight years now, and my practice is primarily focused on litigation. So doing appeals before both the Refugee Appeal Division and the Federal Court—that's where the bulk of my practice is. Um, but I, my kind of substantive specialty is LGBTQ immigration. So. That can be, you know, anything from the visitor visas, the student permits, right up until the permanent resident applications and any kind of LGBTQ issues that pop up on any of those applications. My practice since um, the pandemic has started has shifted a lot to doing mandamus applications. So oh, you and me both sister. Yeah, so we have been trying like all immigration lawyers to get our files moving. So a lot of my practice involves, you know, trying to push files along faster than what they should be.
0: We like to move it, move it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, we understand uh, that you have a book coming out pretty soon. You and your law partner, Michael Batista, have a new book coming out with Emond called uh, Family Class Sponsorship in Canadian Immigration Law.
2: Yeah, so we're really excited about the book that's coming out. It's really meant to be that kind of practical guide, both for practitioners that are preparing sponsorship applications. um, Both individuals who are at the beginning of their practice, who are students who are learning about family class sponsorship, but you know, as a more experienced practitioner now i would say it's always good to have that kind of concise guide that you can go and you can refer back to that's a kind of easy reference guide so even for myself when i finally start you know litigating in person and doing an, a sponsorship appeal the i'm planning on bringing a physical copy of the guide with me because it's a really nice like you know 300 page guide that includes everything right from um you know eligibility in the sponsorship fields who's sponsorable um you know when you don't include a family member in an application what are the avenues that are available to you in- including So including really in-laws right focus in-laws, on being yeah. that practical guy sorry okay. catherine
0: no worries i was just talking about the in-laws <laughs> are they are they in or out like, do we <laughs> do you mean, have a deportation section for them or no here
2: are you asking like no
0: definitely never i'm asking for a friend is what i'm asking for
1: (laughs) yeah we're wondering if there's a chapter in there about um how to get your ex deported because we (laughs) catherine and i would both be very interested in something like that
2: (laughs) i mean deported where though i think we'd all like to be deported to you know bermuda these days
0: (laughs) oh bahamas anywhere (laughs) nice bright sunny so Adrian. Why the the interest, the keen interest in family class category?
2: What is it about I mean, that? I think, like Chantal said, it's one of those categories that people think is set in stone. But, you know, from an LGBTQ perspective, that's been one area that has continuously evolved for so many years, for decades, and really continues to evolve. Like if we see the recent federal court case um, in AP from Justice Furher, We're seeing that sponsorships may even be allowable for mixed orientation couples so between a straight woman and a gay man so this is an evolution of relationships that i think is really fascinating for me personally and i think it's you know it's interesting for all of us just to see culturally how canadian society is evolving and how family sponsorships sometimes are ahead of the game in defining who our families are and sometimes they're behind the game so yeah it's just it's a really fascinating field that i think if you if you love learning then it's a great it's a great field to practice in
1: can you tell us a little bit more you mentioned a a federal court case would you mind unpacking that for us what what's the name of the case and and how how did the facts go etc
2: yeah so um the case is called ap and what it involved is it i i would call it probably one of the most groundbreaking cases of the last year and it involved a straight woman and a gay man who were friends at university And the woman had romantic feelings for the man, but man was gay. So they started traveling together and on one of these trips together, they ended up becoming intimate and the woman became pregnant. So they had a discussion together, agreed to co-parent the child and, you know, essentially started a co-parenting relationship. There was visits back and forth between the woman and the man. There was you know regular correspondence there was financial um, um support on both parties so everything you would see with if you want to call a heterosexual or homosexual couple so then because of this kind of what they defined as a conjugal relationship they decided to submit or the gay man who is in canada decided to submit an application to sponsor this The straight woman and and their child so once it got to the visa office the visa officer rejected the application and basically said you know a homosexual man and a heterosexual woman they don't meet the sexual component of a conjugal relationship so i can't approve this application they rejected it and then it got to the id and there was some concerns from the id a lot about the knowledge of their relationship history But essentially just confirming what the visa officer said, which is, this isn't an orientation that is included in the conjugal relationship. So then we get up to the federal court and really interesting language from Justice Furher at the federal court. What the judge said is that essentially what the IED had was a closed mind when they were looking at the relationship. So they didn't even consider the possibility that a mixed orientation couple, as she defined it, could even be eligible for conjugal sponsorship. The other thing that the judge really focused on was, um, you know, in a conjugal relationship, there's so many different components. And what the judge said is the judge said, well, sexual relations are just one part of that relationship. And in this case, it seemed like there was an uh, kind of like a, you know, a complete focus on that to the exclusion of all the other parts of the conjugal relationship that exist. So the judicial review was allowed and, you know, sent back to the IED because, and, you know, there was a direction to basically consider this could be a relationship that centers on a loving family unit that is, you know, intertwined financially, emotionally, and they're co-parenting a child together. So really interesting case, I think, from the federal court. And just going back to your other question, I think really at the forefront of defining, you know, what a family is under family sponsorship. I I find that
1: whole thing very interesting because I I have often wondered about why You know, the definition of conjugality was so centered around the sexual intimacy component um, to almost to the exclusion sometimes of other things. I I remember one time early in my career, I had um, a relationship of a very elderly gentleman uh, who ended up being in a conjugal relationship and eventually common law and then eventually married to the woman who started out as his caregiver, uh, and after his wife had passed away, and he was widowed, and then they became involved with each other. And, you, you know, the this sort of obsession about, oh, well, an 80-year-old man could never, you know, be in a relationship with a woman that young, you know, because of the sexual component, that was always very puzzling to me. I mean, everybody knows anyway, after you get married, you don't have sex. So exactly. I actually think it should probably be the other way around. Like, if you are having sex, it might be a sign that it's not a genuine relationship.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Hilarious. laughs> The other thing too is sometimes when, when couples are in fact having sex, that doesn't mean that there is a relationship. Right. Right. Yes. So, yes. so that, that, you know, playing off of what Chantal said, that's maybe an indication of some type of physical intimacy, but it's not everything. Mm-hmm. And you know, no marriage, the basis of like any successful marriage relationship, conjugal relationship is sex. It, there has to be more. There has to be emotional intimacy. There has to be a lot more, co- you know, communication, respect, a whole a whole bunch of layers, financial intimacy, uh, interdependency of kinds. I think. Yes. I think it, this case really challenged, you know, a, as we all agree, that definition of family. So why why hasn't Immigration Canada caught up? Like, why yeah. aren't officers? off, you know, opening up their minds to this. Why are we so stuck in that very historical and traditional definition?
2: I think if I had to guess, I think it's that floodgates argument, right? It's that protection of the kind of um, traditional family unit that there's this fear even, you know, what my law partner Michael always said when he was advocating to include same-sex relationships in um, you know, in ERPA, as part of the, the definition of someone who could be sponsored, there was always this concern, I think, that, you know, oh, two friends will just, you know, apply to sponsor each other. And, you know, obviously for us immigration lawyers, we think, well, you can also be a man and a woman and be friends and submit a non-genuine relationship. Like the fact that you're the same gender, I don't think really changes anything. But, I, you know, it's, it goes back to this kind of protection over the traditional family unit and, you know, the, the kind of gates that we set up in immigration law about who we should let in or not.
0: But maybe we should try and change the focus to to protect things like mutual respect and understanding and communication, the things that make, the qualities mm. that make a relationship good. What yeah. kinds of evidence do you think Would be helpful for practitioners to provide in these types of cases
2: i mean i think you know when we talk about proof of communication which i think we all submit in our sponsorship applications then what we're really talking about is we're talking about substantive communication like like you said is there a mutual respect that's there in making shared decisions together it's not just a you know this is the evidence that shows that they communicate every day. Well, you, you could communicate every day and not have a good relationship. So, you know, I think the more substantive a relationship is, the more it could help address that concern that it's not a real relationship because they're not the same sexual orientation. I, th- I think
1: also, like, just to play devil's advocate for a minute, I I can understand how officers would find this really, really messy, right? Because they have to adjudicate all of these applications. There are thousands of them every year. Uh, Most of these people, they never interview them. So they're having to decide based on paperwork, who's genuine and who's not. And when you start getting relationships that don't fit into a certain mold that we're used to seeing all the time, like a cookie cutter type of relationship, then it makes their decision-making, I think, really difficult. So on on one level, I kind of sympathize with the decision-makers, like not having a kind of a bright line test. As these lines start to get blurry, it becomes more and more difficult for them to adjudicate.
2: It's true. And, you know, if we go back to some of our our professional development that we've done this year at the Canadian Bar Association, talking about the future of immigration decision-making and AI, like in a messier case like this, like you say, Chantel, like how are you supposed to incorporate that standard decision-making into cases like this? It would be incredibly difficult for the officer.
1: Yeah, and I mean, when you look back, like I guess part of this also comes from the Supreme Court case law that gives rise to this whole idea of conjugality. It's getting a little bit old now, right? Like it was decided in a different decade of time where the view of family really was quite different. And even recognizing that a couple could be validly common law was something at that time, which was a, a kind of a new idea, right? So, mm-hmm. so I, I mean, it, when you think of it in those terms, like the case law framework that we're working within is really um, sort of a little outdated as well.
2: I think you're right. If you look at that Supreme Court case from MH too, like so much of it is focused on shared shelter and children. And it's like, you know, the reality is that, you know, I have lots of couples that are um, you know lots of sorry friends who are couples who are long-term committed to each other who don't have either of those things. And they have separate apartments and, you know, they're some of the happiest people I know. And there
0: is that family law court case that kind of altered that definition a little bit that said two people living in separate residences can still be common law if there's enough interdependency financially, emotionally, et cetera. And, and that, I think, was moving also away from that traditional definition of common law where you have those you know, M&H factors of just shared housing, et cetera.
2: Yeah, that's an interesting point. Like, really, what we need is we need, we need an updated MNH for the immigration field, where it kind of incorporates all of this direction that we've gotten from the federal court or from family law cases to reflect a more modern definition of family. But so much of IRCC's definition of conjugality is based on MNH. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Even even this case, they went through some of the factors as well.
2: Yeah, I
1: I also think like the the core of it, though, is is still pretty valid. I mean, even they said at the time that, okay, this is a list of common factors. But, you know, some or all of these factors may or may not be there. Right. Mm -hmm. I I mean, every relationship is different. So it's possible, for example, to find a relationship, uh, you know, as genuine, even if there's no financial interdependency, if the couple Mm -hmm. keeps their finances completely separate, which actually is more and more happening. I'm noticing that with my files. Uh, that people are not having joint bank accounts or anything like that. So, you know, if if that's the case, then what should be different about the intimacy factor or the shelter factor, right? Mm -hmm. If it's okay to have no interdependency financially, why is it not okay not to have the sexual component or the shared shelter component, Mm. right? But then you get into sort of slippery slope thinking too. It's like, okay, well, where's the line then, right? Circling back to that decision-making, like you've got to draw the line somewhere.
2: Yeah, no, it's true. Like, I couldn't really imagine a situation for someone, um, you know, that they're both living in Canada and they file a sponsorship. I mean, obviously, if you file the in-Canada sponsorship, you have to be cohabitating. But if you decide to file an overseas sponsorship for whatever reason, maybe for appeal rights, and you're both living in Canada but not in the same residence, I just can't imagine that that would, you know, be approved.
0: But it's interesting because if I'm married... I don't have to live in the same residence, but I have that piece of paper and now it's changed everything. It's very interesting how that piece of paper suddenly can change the way that that immigration officer would find my relationship, even if we're living in separate residences. And I do know married couples, happily married couples that are living in separate residences, you know, a few blocks apart, just because they like their own time and they like time together and this is what they have decided on the way that they decide to operate their relationship Mm -hmm. i I think we're going to start seeing a lot more um you know expansion of this and and for me as a practitioner it comes down to what evidence can i provide to make sure i alleviate that officer's concerns so you know Mm -hmm. all those text messages including the fights right i always You know, when I'm reading them and, you know, I can see that on WhatsApp, they're fighting back and forth. (laughs) I include that uh, on a lot of my. It's very authentic. (laughs) All right. You don't always want the Oh, I love you. I miss you. Um, You know, those. How's your day? It's good. Good. Um, Sometimes you want the what are we going to do about this? And it's, Mm. you know, sometimes by text message and then you see the voice call uh, scripts. I think including all of that becomes very vital to demonstrating that genuineness and Mm -hmm. and making it clear as well to immigration this couple has defined their relationship this way Mm. and here's the evidence to support that
2: so can I ask when the both of you are preparing a sponsorship application like what do you see on because IRCC has their document checklist of what evidence is needed what do you see as like the most important evidence or do you think it's all the little chips that have to add up to make the the picture or something that's compelling to the officer. Do you see it as some kind of slam dunk evidence when you when you get that from a couple?
1: I, I think for me it's it's the way that they intermingle their family units together. So mm. you know it's it's easier for people to engage in a sham or have, you know, fake evidence where it's only the two of them. Because anybody can drive to Niagara Falls and take some pictures of themselves in front of the falls, right? Anybody can do that. But when, when I see stuff like their their mother or their adult children um, or, you know, other members of their family that are vouching for the relationship, or I see them in pictures together where, you know, the applicant is is with his in-laws. To mm-hmm. me, that's very convincing because I always tell my clients, you know, if somebody was going to engage in a fake relationship, they wouldn't drag their parents into it.
2: Mm. They, they
1: wouldn't drag their, their kids into it. Like their 16 year old daughter, they they wouldn't do mm. that. So for me, that that would be the answer.
0: Yeah, for me, I, I find the text messaging, the communications, um, mm. I like to add a lot more. The more doubt that I might have, the more I would go towards that to ask for more evidence of communication and text messaging, photos, Um you know, I do ask them to redact the photos that I don't want to see because I don't <laughs> want to, you know, look at my client that way, right? At um, one time, I remember preparing an application, and they included some very interesting photos. And I remember thinking, okay, we, I can't, I can't, I just, I don't need those photos to demonstrate the genuineness. But thank you very much because I can't get the image out of my head. I can't unsee it. I can't unsee it. <laughs> And the other thing, too, is when I'm looking at those various photos, I'm looking at the background as well. Mm. What's going on in the background? Are there photos of family members in the background? Is there that level of comfort? Mm. Um, are there drinks on the table, mm. right, to see sort of what's going on? And interestingly, I, I've done a couple a tips on the technology that immigration uses. They'll, they'll send the photos through for facial recognition software to see, you know, who's how many people were at the wedding, and how many times have those people been at that wedding? or that kind of thing? So technology is also impacting uh, a lot of the evidentiary, like the evidence that we put forward as well. But for me, it's like the text messaging going back and forth. because when couples are apart, they're always communicating, whether yeah. it's
2: good or bad, right? What, what's, what's your response to that question, Adrian? What do you look I for? mean it's interesting listening to both of you because I think when I think about my practice like we deal in an area where there isn't a lot of sometimes evidence of you know them meeting the other person's family like I completely agree with you Chantal like you're not going to bring your mother into this if you're going to have a marriage scheme happening but it's like so many of my clients, even if they're Canadian citizens and they're born in Canada, depending on the community they come from, mom and mom and dad don't know about their relationship with this individual. So, you know, it's such a unique, I think barrier that our clients sometimes face. But I think for me, like I really do like the financial interdependence. I think, you know, when someone's listed at a benef- as a beneficiary on, Investments or, you know, an RSP statement or employee benefits, I think that's always really great evidence because like, you know, same thing, if you're going to engage in a marriage sham, do you want to be financially burnt at the end of it? Yeah, yeah, that's
1: a good point. I, I would find that very persuasive too, if I were a decision maker, you know, if you're going to enter into a fake marriage with somebody or some kind of a scam, you're not going to put them as a co-signer on your bank account. <laughs> exactly. I also think
0: context right like it also depends on the age of my client where where are they at how how long have they been together Um, because that financial piece I mean the older people get maybe they don't want to intermingle those finances because Mm -hmm. you you've got kids I've got kids so I want my stuff to go to my kids your stuff can go to your kids so we've decided to keep it somewhat separate So I think context, I think the evidence will change depending on the context of the relationship.
1: Yeah, I also, I I often tell students when I'm teaching that, um, you know, your job as an advocate is also to challenge your client on the weak points and see if you can shore those up, right? You're not doing anyone any favors if you just take whatever they give you and put it in the package. I mean, like, a monkey could do that, could follow a checklist and stick stuff in a package and send it, right? You're not adding any value. But for me, like you ask your client those hard questions. It's like, well, why, you know, do you not trust each other? Like, why are all your accounts separate? What's your explanation? Or why have you not told your parents about your relationship? And often when you dig in there, that's where you find the real gold, the honest, raw truth that you know is like it somehow has an air of authenticity about it
0: i also think it comes down to responsibilities like a relationship is about responsibilities raising kids is a big responsibility mm. and people aren't going to raise choose to raise children that they're not going to take that decision lightly because you're now mm. forever intermingled with that person mm. and you know managing a home is a lot of responsibility So I think providing evidence about the shared responsibilities becomes important as well. Now, how do you do that? Well, I mowed the lawn this week. You can mow it next week. (laughs) Here's a photo of of my significant other mowing the lawn.
1: (laughs) That's not pretty. I don't do that at our house. (laughs) I I also find that um, I often have to encourage people to, like, particularly if they're getting support letters from relatives and friends, to encourage them to be really honest and not just follow a formula. And, you know, everything is sunshine and rainbows. Like my favorite kinds of support letters are the ones where somebody will say, you know what, when he started going out with her, I didn't like her. Yeah. But you know what? Over time, I could see that she was really good to him and they were very much in love. So I've come to accept it like that to me, that kind of honesty. You can't make that up.
2: I think you're right. I think it goes to your point about thinking about what the officer is going to decide and connect to, like, I think what we're really talking about when we prepare these applications is, you know, if you are a decision maker looking at this application, could you connect with the story that this couple has presented? So I think you're right that like the more kind of raw and authentic and and whole that the portrayal of the relationship has on a paper-based application, which is hard on its own, that's going to speak to the officer because you know that officer may have their own personal experience or the experience of friends that they can say, yeah, I didn't actually didn't like my best friend's boyfriend when I met him either. Mm-hmm. So I th- I think it's a really good point. Where what we're trying to do is we're trying to you know, com- connect with the humanity of the decision maker that's going to, you know, decide our client's future, really. Mm-hmm. So I think
0: really AP Canada for me is to really get to know your client. Get to know your client. Ask a lot of questions. And, of course, you have to delve into that. You're, you're delving into their relationship. So mm-hmm. it is quite intrusive of a process now. You know who's who's mowing the lawn do you have shared finances who what how do you divvy the responsibilities about the children you know wh- who's your will made out to mm-hmm. uh, you know who's the beneficiary of your work policy etc do your parents approve are mm-hmm. they going to write a letter of support a- and you know what are the the challenges around all of that it, i think for me ap comes down to really getting to know your client asking hard questions and providing a lot more evidence. Because as an officer, I I would be questioning everything, right? Like, it's definitely muddying the waters. And I think as practitioners, if we can provide as much evidence as possible, I I think that's really
2: the best thing to do for us. I mean, I think that... Oh, sorry, Chantal. Oh, go ahead, please. I think the next frontier for me, what I'm seeing is, I'm seeing a lot of thruffles. So I'm seeing, you know, a Canadian or two Canadians that are in a relationship with one foreign national and are sharing finances, sharing shelter, like truly acting like a three-person conjugal partnership, or maybe two people are married and there's a third person there. But, you know, I have multiple people that approach me that say, why is this not allowed and this is how we run our family so when we're talking about muddying the waters I think you know they're really going to only get muddier as as things go on
1: yeah I, I don't envy the decision makers sometimes in these types of cases because I, I mean you, you have to understand like it, it's all against a backdrop of there is some fraud out there right I mean I, I think we're naive if we don't recognize that you know it's mm-hmm. it, not everybody is wonderful and honest and genuine like sometimes there is some fraud and you know you're the person that has to decide who is genuine and who is not that's a big responsibility it's a really hard mm-hmm. job that they have to do so i i sympathize what other barriers to family reunification do you see
2: i mean for right now it's all about timing right like The government has told us most people should only expect to be separated for 12 months. And I think the impact of the delays in processing is creating, like for me, that's the number one barrier to family reunification, regardless of, you know, who can be sponsored and siblings not being allowed to be sponsored and all those other legislative barriers. But, you know, just kind of current um, climate that my clients are facing, I think the government does need to start recognizing that when it takes a long time to decide an application, it's not just keeping a couple apart. It's hindering their financial future. It's keeping them from buying property. Maybe it's keeping them from starting a family. It's keeping them from meeting in-laws that may have health issues that they may never get to meet if they don't come to Canada. So, you know, I'm seeing all these individual examples where people's lives are really on hold um and i hope that we can get back to that 12 month processing timeline sooner rather than later
1: yeah covid is becoming a very weak excuse at this point it's like look we're 17 months into that you haven't figured out how to do your workflow yet like how is that possible everybody else has figured this out but you can't it's uh I I don't know. I I get a little angry when I think about it because like you, I'm doing a lot of that type of work right now. People who are very upset about delays in processing their applications. Some of them are really sad, like some of them, like one of the partners is ill. Um, Some of them, their biological tick, their biological clock is ticking. They're thinking, okay, if I can't get pregnant in the next one year, I don't know if I will ever be able to. Um, it's it's really, really yes. difficult to watch that and to keep getting the same reply all the time from IRCC, COVID, 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 COVID. It's like, okay, well, when, when are we going to get off this COVID track and like, let's get processing files again?
2: Yeah, and it's like, I think as immigration practitioners, like how can we help? How can we help you streamline the process of this huge backlog that you have? Like, I just think, you know, it comes back to that, like we can all be proactive in making sure that the right applications get through and that they're processed seamlessly and efficiently. But it feels like right now, the communication lines between even our office and visa offices overseas or IRCC in Canada, the communication just seems broken. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just, you know, it's not a it's not a compl- although i do want to complain a lot but um you know like chantal said i'm sympathetic to their workload but like how can we help we all yeah. want to get these applications like off our plate and get yeah. a decision so especially we're all kind of have the same motivation
0: yeah especially when they're being returned for silly reasons we had an application returned because the canadian sponsor's birth certificate was not included but their Canadian passport was included. And I mean, and the couple has been married for over 25 years and have adult children. Like, come on, give me a break. You can, you can put it in the queue instead of returning it for after eight months of sitting on a shelf. And now we have to redo everything. Yeah. And you could have put that in the queue. Cause it's pretty clear that they're a Canadian
1: citizen. Like, is there a question about whether they were born or not? I, I know. Like maybe they
0: hatched. I I, it's very interesting because all I could think was why would this trigger it to be sent back like you don't think she's alive but the government issued her a passport what are we really (laughs) come on come on and and I find that to be very frustrating and aggravating I I also find you know Chantal and I I do a lot of teaching and Mm -hmm. following the checklist is not enough it's not enough you have to go beyond that. You have to make sure you provide supplementary documentation, and sometimes you have to get creative mm. and, and think outside that box. Yeah, yeah, um, and you know about other things. You know, um, you know, Facebook. You know, printouts. What have you got there? What's your Snapchat look like? I, I don't have Snapchat.
2: So, can barely spell it. It's you not even, it even like you knew, you had Snapchat. Did I though.
1: sound cool? She's trying to seem cool. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to. It, start worked with it. for me. <laughs> you yeah. fooled Adrian. There you go. Like, <laughs> I'm gonna put my collar up right now and be like, "Hey." <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're right though. Like the the checklist is the bare minimum of what you need to do. Like that. That's in order for it to be considered complete. It's not necessarily what's needed to be successful. Right, depending on your fact scenario. I mean, if it's very straightforward, that's one thing. But how many yeah. relationships do you know that are straightforward? Yeah.
2: I mean, it's that interesting tug of war between making it simple and straightforward for the officer. Like, you don't want to overwhelm them and drown them in evidence. But then, like, you know, with experience like Chantal going to the federal court all the time, knowing how critical it is if that piece of evidence is included before the federal court then when you're litigating you're always having that mentality of like i better just err on the side of caution and put it in because i can't get it in at the judicial review stage i don't know if you think that way as well yeah totally like you
1: when you do litigation you can't help yourself you're always thinking about all the things that could go wrong and thinking okay if i have to get up in front of a judge at some point based on a fixed record where i cannot put in any new evidence. Am I going to have enough to be able to defend, to be able to defend this? Right. Like, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to know because how much is enough? You know what I mean? Is 20 wedding pictures? Is that enough? Should it be 21? Why, why 20 like 21 19? What's the difference? It's so hard to judge. That's also the reason why I moved the checklist
0: above my signature. Sometimes Mm -hmm. people will put the checklist as an addendum, as a separate document. But mm. I put it in the actual submission letter right before my signature because yeah. when I've gone to federal court, that checklist is evidence that we submitted it or the officer ought to have known we intended to submit it. And it's saved mm. our butts in, in court before mm. because the judge said, well, it was on the checklist and the officer should have caught that. It wasn't actually part of you know the documentation. So therefore, and it did exist.
1: Especially when you consider that sometimes they do lose things.
0: Oh, yes. right? sometimes. <laughs> hmm.
1: You are so polite. <laughs> yeah. Just
0: it's... in conclusion, what what helpful hints would you recommend in you know in light of this you know new uh, definition or becoming a new definition of family? What would you suggest? Any concluding comments for our listeners? <laughs>
2: I think the concluding comments just go back to what both of you said, which is every case truly is unique and like for me as a practitioner, yes, you have the document checklist, but there's really a kind of strategy that you develop about exactly what evidence you need and it's incredibly different for every single case. So I think as, you know, an immigration practitioner, if you haven't done a lot of family class sponsorships you're going to be tempted to stick to that checklist but at our office maybe it's because so many of our clients don't meet the documents on that checklist that we're kind of used to thinking creatively but um you know i think when ircc is looking at a sponsorship application what they also really want to see is they want to see your best efforts like if you can't get a document Give me an explanation about why that person isn't listed on your employment benefits if you have benefits so we're very much um you know every case is unique and i also deal with the red flags up front in my cover letter in an explanation so that there's no question in the mind of the officer about you know what's going on in this relationship
0: i think that's really vital to deal with those red flags Sometimes I find practitioners will avoid them or or think that, you know, if I don't address it, then the officer won't even look that direction or think about it. So I I like that. I do that as well. Yeah.
1: Well, Adrian, we just want to thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, We know that you're really busy and you gave up your time this afternoon to to have this chat. And I know that our audience is going to really appreciate all of the uh, helpful tips and information that you provided.
2: Well, thanks for having me. It was, you know, lovely to see you both and just really, really interesting conversation today. So thank you. Thank you very much.
0: What's your area of focus? Refugee claims? Family class sponsorship? Temporary work authorizations?
1: No, I tend to focus on red wine and
0: broken dreams. Find all you need to know with Iman Publishing's Immigration Law Series, supported by general editors Catherine Sawicki and Chantal Delage. Never heard of them. EMOND's Practical and Contemporary series offers clear, concise, and balanced guidance on the most challenging areas of immigration practice. Learn more at emond.ca forward slash ILS. This segment is called the Things I Wish I Knew. Chantal, what did you wish someone
1: had told you when you were starting out in immigration law? I think particularly as a young female practitioner at that time, what I wish somebody had told me was to respect and know the value of my skills in education. Because I think particularly when you're new, and maybe you're, you're young or not so young or whatever it is, but you, when you're starting out, you, you feel so much lack of self-confidence and you think that everybody knows everything and you don't know anything and you fail to put a value on your time and on your skills. Um, What I realized is that, first of all, free time is not really free. Um, If you are saying yes to a bunch of things, particularly if you're not charging for those things, you're also saying no to something that you personally would like to do more, whether that's spend time with your family or do something that's, you know, taking care of yourself. Um, People will try to encroach on that time, and will try to sort of get your knowledge and get your skills without having done that work and without paying for it. And it's not necessarily that, it's not necessarily that their motivations are wrong, but they just don't realize that your time and knowledge is your product. Um, Yeah, and I mean, in the same way that I wouldn't walk into a restaurant and take food for free, People shouldn't expect to take your time for free either. And I I realized over the course of time that your lack of self-confidence can limit you um, in the sense that, you know, you go out there, you go to meetings, you listen to things, and suppose you're around a big table of experts, and you have an idea— and you don't say it because you think, oh, that, that's stupid, or these people already know all of this. And then two minutes later, someone else comes out with the exact same thing that you were going to say. What you realize very quickly is that they're not smarter than you. Um, you know, no matter how senior the practitioner is or who they are, or what kind of a reputation they have, uh, they may have more experience than you. Um, and may know more substantive things than you do, all of which should be respected. But they're not necessarily smarter than you, so don't sell yourself short in that respect. Um, I, I also found that, it, you know, when when it comes to certain things, like I, I'm not saying to guinea pig your skills without knowing what you're doing, but there's sometimes when you get a really good opportunity and. You, maybe you've only got it about 80% figured out, but you're not 100% confident. Say yes, figure out the other 20%. Do not pass up the opportunity um, because you don't feel like you're perfect at it or you don't maybe have all of the kinks worked out. Figure it out, but take advantage of the opportunity. I would say that would, would be my main one. For me,
0: it would be how to be an effective leader. We come out of law school and right away, most often, we're lawyers and we have an assistant of some kind helping us through our day-to-day to manage all of our client work, our schedule, incoming calls, walk-in clients, et cetera. But being an effective leader was nothing. It wasn't a course in law school. We were never taught how to be an effective leader or manager. And I, I think that some helpful hints, you know, I wish someone had said, Listen. Listen to your colleagues when they talk to you about their workload, what they do or don't know how to do. When you listen to them, you can earn their trust and you can have that mutually respectful relationship. Um, Get into the dirt with them. When tasks need to be completed, if one person's constantly staying late, make sure that you roll up your sleeves and say, how can I help you out? Mm -hmm. No task is above or beneath any human being. It's got to get done. That file has to get out. Sometimes, if that means that court record has to be photocopied one million pages worth, then just roll up your sleeves and start photocopying. And then I think effective leaders also know the difference between being friends with coworkers and and being their boss. I find that was a really tough one to to manage because yes. I love my my colleagues and the people, the team that I've always worked with, but at the end of the day I have to make the hard decisions sometimes. But and and then lastly, make the decisions. You know, listen to your colleagues or you know, your coworkers when they are talking about what to do, what not to do, how to structure the business, whatever it may be. Take, really absorb and listen to them and their input and their perspectives. And once you've made the decision, you've made the decision. And whatever will be, will be. And it's okay to be wrong. At the end of the day, I think good leaders make both good and bad decisions. But people generally will remember an effective leader by the good decisions that they've made and how they've admitted their their bad decisions and dealt with those.
1: Yeah. Some of my worst mistakes have been not taking an action or making a decision at the appropriate time. So sometimes by delaying a decision, you're actually making a decision. Yeah. 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 It can be hard. Things
0: I wish I knew. Are you an immigration practitioner working on cases involving temporary residency and work permit applications? Hmm. Stay prepared with Iman Publishing's temporary entry into the Canadian labour market by Stephen Green, Alexandra Cole, Christina Grita, and Peter Salerno. This handbook will guide you through the avenues and implication of a foreign worker's temporary entry into Canada from applications for work authorizations all the way through to employer compliance and inspections. Get your copy today. Visit emun.ca forward slash TECLM and enter promo code TECLM 10 for 10% off.
1: Do it now. We at Welcome Home would like to thank Adrienne for the time that she spent with us today, contributing so much insightful commentary about the definition of family and challenging the way that we think about it. We really appreciate all of the tips and the practical advice that you gave us, Adrienne. The Welcome Home podcast is produced, engineered, and edited by Alex Ross of Never Sleeps Network, directed and published by Danan Haas, and marketing by Katrina Harley. For our listeners, EMOND is offering 10% off titles in the Immigration Law series. Just visit imand.ca forward slash welcomehomeimmigration and enter code welcomehome at checkout. And we want to hear from you. Please email us with your questions or topics at imon.ca or leave us a voicemail at phone number 416-975-3925 extension 227. My name is Dana Hawes and I'm the senior publisher at Emon Publishing. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Welcome Home podcast. We at Emon Publishing are committed to providing best-in-class immigration law content including our Immigration Law series, edited by Chantal Deloge and Catherine Sawicki, our best-selling treatise, Canadian Immigration and Refugee Law, A Practitioner's Handbook, 3rd Edition, new initiatives like the Welcome Home podcast, as well as our Emond Exam Prep ICCRC practice exams, and a host of immigration law casebooks and textbooks for law school, university, and college students. Imand is also the proud provider of most of the required resources for the Queen's Immigration and Citizenship Law Program for Immigration Consultants.